This is Gil Manser welcoming you to KRCB-FM's Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers show from North Bay Public Media. We will be celebrating Halloween a tad bit early with a reprise of a Word-by-Word Conversation with novelist Molly Dwyer and her astounding book, Requiem for the Author of Frankenstein. The spooky story travels from the present to the past and recounts the almost unbelievable life of Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, who wrote her novel Frankenstein, A Modern Prometheus, when she was only 19 years old. But first, a few words about the transformational educator, Molly Dwyer. Molly earned a special master's from Sonoma State on the process of writing and also has a Ph.D. from the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco and has written or co-written several important works, including Divine Duality, The Power and Reconciliation Between Man and Women, The Emergent Feminine, The Role of the Feminine in the Evolution of the Universe. But as the first of her trilogy of novels about the Romantics, which we will be focusing on this evening. Entitled Requiem for the Author of Frankenstein, it recounts the most unbelievable life of Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, who wrote her novel Frankenstein, A Modern Prometheus, when she was only 19 years old. Molly, there is a mythology about the creation of this famous book, for in mysterious combination of time and space, the novel Dracula had its beginnings here as well. I'm going to read to you from something David Rank wrote when he was talking about the novel Frankenstein. Mary Sheller, Shelley, sorry, Mary Shelley, her lover and future husband, the poet Percy Shelley, Lord Byron, and his physician, Dr. Polidori, were staying at Byron's country villa on Lake Geneva. It was a stormy night of orgies, opium, and ghost stories. The men also liked to discuss the theory of galvanism, scientifically bringing a dead body back to life. It was this that gave Mary Shelley the central idea for her main character, a creature created and brought to life by a mad science. And it was out of these nightmare-inducing, drug-induced, spine-chilling elements that Mary Shelley was struck with the idea to write her masterpiece about Frankenstein, a misunderstood and persecuted but otherwise good and gentle, noble savage, and freak creation of science. This book will teach you a thing or two about how people treat the outsider and about how it's important to judge people from the inside, not the outside. So, comments. Well, I think he's got a lot of it right. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and some interesting things that are wrong, too. Yeah. Yes. Well, she also, I mean, she was there. And, and it's in Switzerland on Lake Geneva. And it's actually was uh, Milton had lived there before. And that was part of the intrigue, ah. too. Uh-huh. And they were there uh, for the summer. And Byron uh, famously challenged them to write ghost stories. They were, uh, as she put it, uh, it was raining incessantly and they had to spend all their time indoors. Mm -hmm. And so they were, you know, without modern television and radio and all the rest, looking for ways to entertain themselves. And they were uh, making up, you know, he challenged them all to write a ghost story. Right. And the other piece that uh, played into her writing of it was a dream. And she talks about that in the introduction of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. that she actually awoke from a dream uh, with uh, such a kind of sense of terror that it occurred to her immediately that if she wrote down what she had experienced, that in some way it would recreate that sense of terror for other people. Right. And so it was a combination of a lot of different elements playing together. And she... She started with a very short piece that was just going to be a story. Mm-hmm. And then Shelley, Percy Best Shelley, um, encouraged her to keep going. And Can you say that middle name again? I've never tried Besh to. Besh. Percy Best Shelley. Okay. 
At least that's the way I learned to say it (laughs) in my English classes. Perfect. All right. That's what we use tonight. (laughs) And uh, he, uh, yeah, he really, they both encouraged her, actually, uh, Byron, too. But uh, so she kept going. And as she was writing, she wrote it over a period of time. She started in Geneva. And then shortly after, say about a month later, they returned to England and she returned. Her half sister was there, or her stepsister. I mean, Claire was Claire. also with them, and Claire had uh, been a kind of one night stand for the for the notorious Lord Byron, and mm-hmm. was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so Mary Shelley and Claire essentially went into hiding in uh, Bath, so that Claire would not be found out. And Mary and Shelley were just as busy trying to protect her. From being found out as, I mean, it was kind of remarkable because Mary had a baby by Shelley and they weren't married and they were already scandalous, but they really didn't want any more scandal and they were trying to protect Claire and themselves. So the two women went into hiding in Bath Mm -hmm. and that's where she finished the story, finished the book. And during that time, her half-sister, Fanny, committed suicide. Right. And so when you look at what's going on in the novel and the darkness of it, the deaths in it and that kind of thing, you can see the other influences that played on her as it became, as it went from this kind of, I think, sort of frothy idea um, in, in maybe the inception of it to write a ghost story to sinking down into a more and more dynamic piece of uh, philosophical literature that I think it really is. I mean, I, I, I think it's the kind of novel that we think of when we think of Orwell or we think of Brave New World. It's, it's a futuristic um, fable that lets you know that um, the world has to... I mean, I think she's saying a number of things. I, I think she's talking about science. I think she's talking about... Um, the dangers of of investing in uh, an unnatural way of creating. But in addition to that, I also think she's talking about gender balance. Mm-hmm. And of course, I would see that because mm-hmm. of my background. But she's talking about uh, – he's actually – wasn't uh, the Victor Frankenstein in the book is, is who creates this is a college student. Mm-hmm. And he's following – the sort of cutting edge of science. He's at the very edge of modern technology of his time. And he's creating life without benefit of the feminine. And he's doing it, and if you follow the characters in the story, you see that at every level that she creates women, they are these kind of empty-headed 19th century perfect females who acquiesce to everything and everything is wonderful. And they're they're just uh, alarmingly domestic. And and she, which was not her experience at all, not at all. And I believe it's satire. I, I I really think that that one of the most important elements is that she's basically, on some level, saying, "See, when you do it this way, this is what happens," and that she ha- and it, it it is her own expression of her own feminisms, that level at which she really felt like her mother did before her, that women had to be educated, they had to participate in a real way, in the culture and in and in the world, in order for us to have the kind of balance in our society that allows for um, a healthy healthy life, healthy and, society. And the naive monster, who's nameless throughout the book. Nameless, yes. Actually realizes that he misses that other half and asks the scientists to create a feminine. Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And, and, he, and he can't. He can't, he can't in, in the end. Well, I think it's fascinating the way you have managed to bring a 21st century perspective by using Anna Trevor, who's a young American writer, who has been invited to present a paper on Frankenstein at the British Conference on Early English Women's Writing. 
But there's another aspect of life similar to Mary Shelley's life is her dreams. Right. So uh, she sometimes has nightmares, in fact, with visits from Mary Shelley and Lord Byron and others. And, in fact, what I'd like you to do, if you could take the book and open it to 22, which is the first Post-it note spot, and then read that, you know, a couple pages there, I think it'd be interesting to hear about some of her dreams. I'm here because I'm hunting my dreams. Hunting your dreams? Rose looked caught off guard, puzzled. Dreams fascinated her. We used to talk about them all the time. She always talked about how Native Americans dreamed the hunt before they hunted. They tracked and killed the deer in their dreams first. And then they went on and hunted the dream, not the deer, but the dream. They searched for the landscape they dreamed. And when they found it, the deer would be there. They would kill the deer because he had made, had because they had its permission. Right action is initiated in the invisible. But how did they dream the deer in the first place? Anna tried to grin. I've lived in San Francisco, you know. My mother read lots of books on dreams. Carlos Castaneda was a favorite. Most people think Castaneda is a fake. He claimed he was in training in Mexico with a Yaqui sorcerer named Don Juan. Sorcerer? Shaman. He said he learned the art of dreaming, which is not the same as dream. It's a sophisticated state of consciousness, a, a technique for expanding perception. By dreaming, he traveled beyond ordinary awareness to realities we can't normally perceive. He made outlandish claims, and my mother believed them. She saw her hands in her dream, and that changed everything, she said. Castaneda said seeing your hands was the first step to this other awareness. Anna paused, exhaled, and looked at Rose, who didn't seem to know what to say. Anna blushed. I've never seen my hands, she said. You have to realize you're dreaming to look at them. It's not easy to become lucid. Castaneda talks about nested dreaming, going to sleep in a lucid dream and waking up in a second lucid dream. He talks about being with Don Juan and dreaming, you know, having a shared experience, mutual memories, that kind of thing. It affects your waking state, too, bleeds over. And so this is what you're doing, dear, this dreaming bit? Suddenly Anna felt exhausted. She bit her lip. It's probably all nonsense, Rose. My mother liked her marijuana, that's all. Too much. She'd said too much. I need to sleep, she said, and rose to leave. If by, uh, if by my watch it's 8 a.m., I've been up all night. She knew she, would found, she knew she sounded defensive. I came because they told me to, she said. That's all I know. Who told you, Rose asked quietly. Well, Byron's mother, for one. Byron's mother? Rose raised an eyebrow. She appeared in a dream, wanting to know my intentions concerning her son. Rose laughed. She would. It was contagious. Anna laughed, too. She was intimidating, Rose. She said there'd been enough exploitation of his celebrity. When I told her my mother's my motives were pure, she was unimpressed. She tipped her chin up, looked down at her nose at me, and sniffed. Then she turned on her heels and walked away. But I get the feeling I passed the mother test because after that, my dreams changed. Anna paused and looked at Rose intently and then said, it felt like she was really there, like a ghost or something. Well, there you have it then, Anna yawned. I really am tired, Rose, she said. Yes, but <clears throat> if we can keep you awake for another hour or so, you'll have a chance of sleeping the night. That's the best way to make the time change. 
Anna exhaled like an exasperated child. All right, she said, sitting back down. I'm not judging, Anna. I'm just trying to understand. Inexplicable things have been happening, Rose. That's all I know. Coincidental things, dreams that spell over into waking and stuff like you have the like you having the picture in the bookcase or everything you're saying about Francis and the family, stuff I never knew, never imagined, I'd, and I find it unnerving. Meaning has its purpose, Rose said. If Tim were alive, he'd tell you the science of synch- about the science of synchronicity. He'd tell you it's you it's because you were taught to see things as separate from each other that the interconnectedness of life seems frightening. Synchronicity doesn't fit into our preconceived notions about the way things are. That's all. Well, there's several things in that uh, excerpt that we can talk about. Let's look at synchronicity. I know you give workshops on that. I just did a I just did a wonderful presentation that I really enjoyed uh, this last weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talking. About, I talked in specifically in, in how I use synchronicity um, in writing because it to me, uh, for example, in this p- section I just read, there's a flash mention of the fact that there were the p- pictures in the bookcase. Right. And what she's referring to is that when in the book, when Anna arrives at her cousin Rose's house in the Hampstead. That there's a picture of Mary Shelley and a picture of Virginia Woolf in the bookcase in the room that she's going to stay in. Mm -hmm. And she's writing about Mary Shelley for a conference that's honoring Virginia Woolf. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that I stayed in a B&B in Hampstead when I was doing research for this book. And I walked into the room, not where I was staying, but the one next door where then when I came back I did stay. And there was a picture of Mary Shelley and Virginia Woolf in the bookcase. Oh, it's strange. It was two, you know, it was two thousand and three. Right. And I said to the woman who who ran the B and B, I said, "What are you doing with a picture of Mary Shelley?" And oh, Virginia I just put it Woolf? out because I knew you were coming. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and she said to me, "Oh, I don't know. I guess I'm just an old feminist." Which then I put into the book as a remark that Rose makes. Right. And so I, when I was doing the workshop, what I was really talking about is the way that when when I. When you take my experience is that when you allow these synchronicities that happen around you to begin to really influence, like I made that B and B the setting. Once I saw those pictures, I went, "Well, obviously I need, I need I'm in the in right place, right, right. right?" So this became the setting, and and Rose emerged out of that setting from the woman who ran the B and B, and a whole slew of things started to happen as soon as I bought into what had been given me by by the pictures. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what I think there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow of synchronicity for writers because the more you buy into that, the more you allow those influences to affect your writing, the more they happen and the more um, precise they become. And and it's uh, Goethe talks about it. He talks about the fact that when you when you venture out as an artist, when you take that first bold step and begin, that you're met and you're met by – the universe, whatever you want to call it, you're met by the collective unconscious. You're met by God, whatever, however you name this other aspect that's meeting you, and it's bigger than you are, and it starts giving back to you in ways that you could not make up by yourself. It's you can't imagine them, and they come to you, and 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 as you follow them and move with them, it um, it helps, it creates the story, it deepens your understanding, it it just changes everything. So it's not limited to writers. It's to our readers and listeners as well. Oh, yeah. I just think and anybody who, I mean, any act of creation, I think, 
it moves you in that direction. And, and I also think that creativity, you know, there are ways to live creative, creatively without ever producing a work of art. Your life can be a work of art. Right. Well, let's look at synchronicity and the, and, you know, we, were, we had that quote a little bit earlier about they were, you know, gathered at this castle and they all in the same area and they end up writing, you know, ghost stories or telling ghost stories. The interesting thing about it is that when I researched it is that I didn't realize it really was literally a dark and stormy night, if I can use that phrase, <laughs> yeah. for the whole time they were there. Yes. Because there had been an eruption of a volcano in Italy, I believe. It wasn't in Italy. It was somewhere in the um, uh, over by Indonesia somewhere. Oh, really? That yeah, far away? Yeah. It wow. was over there. Yeah. And it, it had been – it was huge. And it had caused a disruption to the weather patterns, and they were having uh, – basically having no uh, growing season. Wow. People were worried that summer. Uh, about the end of the world. The global warming of its day. It was a very, yeah, it was a very frightening phenomena. They didn't have a lot to explain it. I mean, I think there was a certain understanding on some parts that it was connected somehow but to the to the eruption, but there wasn't there wasn't the kind of, you know, knowledge and science that we have today to understand what was happening and there was a lot of superstition about it. Mm-hmm. And out of that same period, Byron wrote one of the most remarkable pieces that of poetry that I think he ever penned, which is called Darkness, which is not what he's known for. He's known for his his satire. He's known for Don Juan and Child Harold's uh, Pilgrimage, which are, you know, these these sort of caustic, funny, extremely funny comments on life and society and sexuality and politics. But Darkness is this almost apocalyptic, supernatural kind of thing. Uh, and it's directly related to that. It was the written at the time, the space, yeah, yes. and he's talking about the sun not the shining. The synchronicity of time and yeah, space, yeah. He's, he's talking about, you know, the earth just losing its sun. He's talking about what would happen if if the sun never rose again and how, how, how life would end if we just ended in darkness. Well, it's interesting how you portrayed Shelley because obviously he has, you know, he's crippled and he worries about that. And he also... Uh, is ex- the word used was caustic, and I think that's you mean Byron. You said I'm Byron. Shelley. I said yeah. Shelley. I mean, you were. Thank you. I'm Byron, Lord Byron. Yeah. And um, I'd actually have another thing for you, Reed. If you could turn to uh, page three thirty two, which is a little bit further back in the book, and it's when they are doing this ghost story uh, discussion at the castle, and um, the challenge has been put forth, and um, Mary Shelley has responded, but. Then the reaction from Byron is fascinating. Mayhe has ghost stories of her own to tell, Shelley said, with a certainty that only added to her her uneasiness. The door cracked open. It was Polidari, bleary-eyed and leaning on a crutch. The good doctor had leapt from the balcony earlier in the day, responding to Byron's encouragement. His intention had been to present himself a gentleman and assist Mary up the slippery path. Instead, she'd had to help him. They all turned to look at him. I'm dosed on laudanum for the pain, he said, dropping into the nearest chair. But I cannot sleep. He stared into the fire. Is that not a textbook case of symbolism? Byron said, turning to Mary with a shrug. Ghost stories, have you? What say you to e- if each of us compose a story of the supernatural so as to entertain one another through, the ceaseless, through this ceaseless season of rain? An excellent idea, Shelley said. Well, you contribute to the literary venue, Miss Godwin. We are most interested in your promise. He paused just long enough for the flatness of his tone to travel to her ears. No doubt you've inherited the gift from your most prolific parents. 
Shelley grinned. We're anxious you should prove yourself worthy of your parentage and obtain a literary rep reputation, Pesky. Mary felt speechless. She looked at Shelley, but he seemed little more than a stranger. It was as if she stood at a distance looking back, as if she'd fallen out of time. She glanced at William, who was sleeping sweetly, and collected herself. She anticipa she ha she'd anticipated this. That was it. Had experienced some presentment of its coming. It must be a moment of importance, she thought. A crossroads of some sort that I will always remember. A moment of destiny. And then, like lightning, a clap of inexplicable passion rose up in her. She looked up and met Byron's, Byron's teasing black eyes with a smile. I should be honored to write such a tale for your lordship, she said. Byron bent his head in a slight bow. Hey-ho, he said. Then it's decided. We shall each write a ghost story, one for, the other, one for another's amusement. What about me, Claire spun around from the fire? What about my literary promise? Why do you always favor Mary? Your literary promise lies in finishing the fair copies of my posy. Is that not what we agreed to, Clary, since you, you, you trumpet-tongued and false, insisted on following me halfway across the world and insisted, too, on attention I take no pleasure in giving? You who promised to demand nothing and give the universe, as I recall? Byron turned to Shelley as if to share an aside, but his voice was covered, but his voice covered every corner in the room. I never passed two hours in mixed company without wishing myself out again. Shelley tried to soften the blow. Surely there's no need to humiliate. Oh, for pity's sake. Is this not the not a perfect comedy? Have I not been conducting myself with irksome decorum? By all means, Claire, if you have a story in you, by God, write it. That's fine. Good. Now let's talk about our two primary female characters, Claire and Mary. Are they the same type of person? They're from the same background? Perhaps a little bit about Mary's history, because I think that's shaped her for sure. Yeah, they aren't the same background, actually. In a way, they are, but not completely. Mary Shelley was um, – her, her mother died giving birth. She And she um, was Mary, Mary Wollstonecraft. Who was famous for her uh, essays and treatises on feminism. That's right, and, and had a, a very active political life, really, right. for a woman, and uh, was often called – at one point was called a hyena in petticoats. And um, when she died uh, in childbirth, there were a lot of people that said it was God's punishment of her because she deserved it, because she had been trying to place women out of their league. And, and primarily her, her purpose in all of her work was to get education to women. Mm -hmm. She was really just trying to get women to get educated in, in a way that was equal to what was offered to men. And she was not married to Mary's father. She was in the very end, yes. She, they did oh, they marry. they finally did marry. They did marry. There was a lot of question about whether they would. They both didn't believe in marriage. Because she'd written that marriage was a thing that was going to enslave you forever. Well, the the truth of the fact was in those days when women married, they lost all of their, their property. They lost all of their rights. It really was a relationship that was kind of parental, mm -hmm. the father to the husband to the, to the wife. And she objected to it. And that was part of the reason why Mary and Shelley didn't marry for a long time, too, weren't going to marry. They all well, wasn't Shelley married too. Shelley was married, which is a little you a know, little bit of an impediment. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's true. And but but they operated on this attitude that it wasn't important, and then in the end they did they did succumb to pressure, which is the same reason that Mary's 
mother and father married was mm-hmm. this coming to the pressure right? Godwin at right. the time. But uh, Godwin raised Mary and her older sister Fanny, or her half sister, was also Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter, alone and with a number of different uh, women friends for a time. And mm-hmm. then about the point where Mary was about eight years old, uh, he remarried. And and he remarried Mrs. Um, Claire's mother, uh, Claire Claremont, Mrs. Claremont. And there was an immediate, almost a kind of, um, I guess you'd say... Stepmother st- from the fairy ste- tales. Yeah, yes. yeah, stereotype almost, yes. relationship between them. They really didn't like each other and they really competed for attention and 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 it was very difficult and i and the two girls claire and mary were almost the same age they were about a half year apart mm-hmm. and they competed too and mary was always kind of um i mean she was brilliant and she had a certain favored edge in some ways uh, because of who she was. And I think that Claire um, suffered profoundly because of that and was always trying to become secure and and never really made it. And part of what she did in going after Byron was to kind of get her own, you know, Mary Shelley had Shelley, and so she was after her, her own poet. Her and own. obviously he, from the passage we read, he's rejected her. Yeah, he, he said from the beginning, I mean, he was in the middle of so much, um, he was being thrown out of England at the time. His divorce was, uh, you know, gossip uh, of the... Of the highest degree, all over London, he was. Uh, there were whispered. He'd things. be in entertainment tonight today. Yes, yes. Oh my God, he would be. <laughs> there were whispered things about him everywhere about his uh, suspected relationship with his half sister. That he had uh, had an inappropriate relationship with her. There were whispered things about homosexuality. I mean, he was in deep trouble as far as what the culture was going to accept from him, and he was being snubbed and cut, as they called it in those days. There was a movie made um, by Ken Russell called Gothic. Which yes, is, I know You, you know, the, I'm sure you do. And the, per, the shall we say, the, the painting that's presented is one where they don't give a damn. But what I'm hearing you say over and over again is that convention and what, uh, you know, the morality of the time really was very important to them. Well, yeah, I didn't agree with with. Well, it's Ken, Ken Russell, Russell. who kind of goes over the top. <laughs> yeah, anyway. yeah, it's yes. very, I thought it was very over the top. Even before I began work on this book, I remember thinking it was over the top. Um, I, I do think that both uh, Byron and um, Shelley, Percy Bysshe Shelley, had enormous um, commitment to society in some way, and I don't mean that just to the like rules of proper society at all. Byron stood up and. In Parliament, because he was a lord, he was automatically in in the House of Lords. Mm-hmm. His maiden speech to Parliament when he was like twenty years old or whatever was in defense of the workers in Nottingham who were um, breaking the looms because they were being run. You know, they were being run out of all the home. The cottage industry was right. being destroyed right. by industrialization. And Byron stood up and spoke in their behalf, which you don't do as a lord. And a young lord, it was almost unheard of. And it, it, so they were invested in, in the political dynamics of their time. They mm-hmm. weren't completely indifferent. They were definitely rebels. They fought hard against the things they didn't believe in. Shelley came very close to being put in jail uh, for sedition. Mm-hmm. And Byron, you know, what he, to me, I've said this about genius. I really do believe Byron was a genius. I, I, matter of fact, I, I believe all three of them were geniuses. But in the case of Byron, what I see is that my sense of how genius 
works is that it's kind of an amoral force. It really doesn't care is so much about the person that it's moving through. When you think of people like Michelangelo or Beethoven, mm-hmm. this this struggle that one has with this larger-than-life energy of creativity that you're just kind of holding on. And the, and the, and the creativity itself, what, what that energy is about is manifestation. It wants... It wants what it wants expressed, and the price of it is the problem of the of the human that happens to be you know kind of aligned with that energy. Right, that it's, has to make money to pay the bills and listen yeah. to what other people, neighbors think, et cetera, et cetera. And and I look at Byron. I mean, if you know his history, he had some very painful things happen to him as a child. As you said, he he had this um, deformity, and and I I think that he was a troubled man, and he was grappling with an energy that he didn't really know how to control, and he was um, doing the best he could, and at times he was a real mean man. We are celebrating Halloween a tad bit early on Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Our guest is the transformational educator Molly Dwyer in her astounding book, Requiem for the Author of Frankenstein. The spooky story travels from the present to the past and recounts the almost unbelievable life of Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, who wrote her novel Frankenstein, a Martin Prometheus, when she was only 19 years old. We're going to get back to Mary because we kind of left her and went off with Lord Byron, who's, you know, as much as you write about him in kind of a native way, obviously you, you have a great fondness and admiration for that comes across today. But... What was the role of the poets in this romantic era? Were they the superstars? Were they like, t- you know, TV personalities or were they? Yes, much more than we would imagine today, given what, how poetry fits into our society. I would equate them with rock stars, musicians. Really? really? I, I think of them because, for example, with Byron, who did rise to a real celebrity status, um, you could pay somebody on the street a a haypenny or whatever, and they'd open this little box and there'd be a, a, a miniature painting of him in there. You know, that was their their form of, of uh, what we would, you, you would know. open the box and just see a picture, yeah. a painting of Byron, yeah, and, and you would have paid to, to see that. See that, yeah. And wow. women would faint in his presence. I mean, he's like a Mick Jagger or something. Wow. And Shelley was not as well known. Actually, in an in interesting way, Mary Shelley became better known in her lifetime than Shelley Well, did that's in the interesting, lifetime. you know, one of the transformations in the book is when her fame supersedes his. Right, because yes. of Frankenstein right, itself. Right. And Frankenstein actually brought her that kind of power and uh, recognition uh, because it was turned into theater mm-hmm. really early mm-hmm. on and uh, in her lifetime. Yes. And so, and th- and actually that whole period of time after, uh, I mean, Shelley died very young uh, when he was 29 and she came back to England. Lord Byron died shortly thereafter and she was the sole survivor of this threesome. And she is the reason we really have Shelley's poetry. She um, did the the collecting of all these manuscripts after after his drowning. after his death. She right. she compiled them all. She annotated them all. She edited them all, and she actually produced the first uh, work. You know, the collection of all of his work. Well, let's get back to Mary. We've got her with her new stepmother, and I believe she goes to Scotland. Is that right? She did. As a, <clears throat> she was part of the way that uh, William Godwin, her father, dealt with all of the uh, trauma and the kind of stress in the family was to send her off to Scotland when she uh, was young. She was an adolescent at the time, and she um, spent a couple of years in Scotland on and off. And. Uh, <clears throat> 
and actually heard about Shelley at that point when she was up there because Shelley was, um, became a student, really, of William Godwin's. That's mm-hmm. how he entered into the mm. picture. And then she came back um, home when she was about 15 and met him. Right. And that was the beginning of their story. Well, let's start with the, one of the things that happens at the beginning of their story because one of the things, one of the impacts, there's a sensuality that runs through this book. Would you say yeah. yes? Yeah. <laughs> I guess and that I really, I guess, begins when she's 16 and she is seduced. And there is an excerpt that I'd like you to read, which is a little long, and you can cut it short if you want to. How cruel. And did your parents do nothing? Shelley shook his head. My behavior embarrassed my father, and my mother does nothing but nothing of which he disapproves. Does it frighten you, my ill-mannered youth? Mary shook her head. I ran lonely, he said. In my isolation, I began to imagine myself a mythical creature born in, of a fairy kingdom. I decided I was a changeling, a human without immort- with a human whose immortality would prove him an elfin knight. No wonder I see you as a knight, Mary said, her cheeks reddening. A most admirable and honorable knight. Notwithstanding the, min- the windmills, Shelley bowed. Thus comes the elfin knight to your service, my lady. Well, Mr. Shelley, I, she tried to laugh, but tears pooled in her eyes. Shelley touched his, his fingertips to her cheek, gently, brushing the tears away. What is it, May? What's wrong? You have a wife, Mr. Shelley, and a child, she blurted. Oh, my precious friend, Shelley sighed. So forward and bold, how foolish she was. She seated herself on the cold stone casement of her mother's grave. Could her mother find fault with her behavior? Shelley knelt before her, taking her hand. Do not misunderstand me, Mayhe. It is you I name precious. Do not be deceived by my stations as husband. Listen well to my words, for I am not a happy creature, nor is Harriet. Our marriage is a mockery. His voice turned bitter. As is all marriage, by the servitude its very nature imposes. Harriet demands a carriage and plate and gown. She refuses to nurse nurse Ithne, says it has disastrous consequences to her form. A stranger feeds my sweet daughter from the warmth of her breasts. He sat next to Mary, turning her palm up in his own and tracing the lines, crisscrossing her skin with her with his fingers. Harriet resides in Bath. Bath? His touch made her tremble. She finds Bath charming society and has resided there for some months. She craves the hypocrisy of my parents, where we appear one thing but act another. She evades substance and no longer believes in love. It's Eliza's fault. That woman is poison. He lifted Mary's hand to his lips, leaving a moist kiss on her palm. Again, they were silent. I'm not speaking to convince you, May, though it may seem so. His smile was beguiling. Ah, Mary, my heart aches at the strangeness of my circumstances. I'm dying in a desert, even ever thirsting for the sister of my soul. If my heart's not free to seek its own truth, I shall die, if not by the causes of life itself, then by my own hand. Mary's breath caught in her throat. She tried to sound calm, but her heart was pounding in her chest. My heart begs, I address you sincerely, Mr. Shelley, but to be honest, that is, in truth, her voice trailed off as he bent toward her. Only custom keeps me, Shelley leaned in close, and and she tasted his lips before they ever reached her. Heat. That's fine. We can stop there. It gets a little more, even more explicit as we go on. Heat. But the interesting thing that happens is, is one of the things is 
where this happens. Yes. In a graveyard. I mean, yes. you know, it's kind of a, a spooky place to, to seduce someone. And also the the words that are used, you obviously put time and effort into uh, emulating the style of prose that Shelley uses when he's speaking here. Well, the style of the time, the 19th century literature, yeah, right. I, it's true. I, I read a lot of 19th century literature as research for this book. Um, Mary Shelley had, legend has it, and, and also there's, there's definite evidence that Mary Shelley spent a lot of time at her mother's grave. Really? Um, there's a story that isn't in the book about her father coming and fetching her there one night. I, I actually, I think I make reference to it, but mm-hmm. it's not a scene. It's kind of in passing. Yes. Yeah. And uh, she went there for comfort. She went there to talk to her mother. She went there to cry. She went there to laugh. She just, as a child. And this is a person she never knew. She never knew, except through her writing and, right. and through the stories other people told her. Yeah, and I think she hungered for her mother a great deal, especially as a very young girl. And so in the book, what I, and there is a story. I mean, I didn't pull this completely out of thin air. I, um, It's not proven, but there is there is knowledge that it is pr- evidence that she and Shelley went there together. Mm-hmm. Exactly what happened between them is uncertain. And then they became lovers. Whether it happened in the graveyard is it, yes, your interpretation. Ex- exactly. Right. And and there are others who would agree with me and those who wouldn't. It's a, it, it's the call that you get to make as a fiction writer. Sure. But um the she had a child who died um within 10 days of the time it was born. And the question of whether that child was born premature or not, has often come up. No one's really clear why the child died, whether it was like crib death or what happened. But um, the timing of this scene in terms of how her life fits, fits with the pregnancy in a way that this might have been the inception of it, and it still would have been a premature child. And a lot of people place their sexual and their first sexual encounter after they ran away together, which would be about a month later. Mm-hmm. But whatever it is, the timing is fairly close. Yeah. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about the movies because I think most people know the story Frankenstein from the film. And what I did, you know, in preparation for this was look up, uh, you know, parts of the book. And they're available, by the way, online. Uh, you can find the whole book there if you want to download it. But uh, there's, you know, page after page after page on Google about analysis of this novel. And uh, what you know impact it has, and everybody writing their dissertation about it, et cetera. So they've got to get it online. But the the fascinating thing to me is that there were there are two scenes probably from, and we're talking, you know, the the movie that that stars Boris Karloff that everybody knows with Colin Clive saying it's alive, it's alive. Do you remember? And um, it's um, directed by um, uh, James Whale, who was another fascinating movie it was made about him and his life. And the the scenes that you remember are the ones with the flashing electricity. And the scene that at least the, that I remember was the young girl beside the river. But I've got the original words from the book, and boy, are they different. Mm-hmm. Did you want to read those? Or, or Go ahead. Okay. This is, this is what I've called the reanimation, and this is um, from the writings of Mary Shelley in the modern... Frankenstein and Modern Prometheus. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils, writes Frankenstein. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out. 
when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw a dull, dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's strong. Mm-hmm. I don't see any flashing lightning. I mean, there's electricity, and there's no hunchback man going around saying, yes, master, or any of that. No, it's much more subtle. Much more subtle. Same way with the death of the girl by the river. I'll read this to you. Um, this is the story from the monster's words himself, describing what happened to um, to the young man. I continued to wind among the paths of the wood until I came to its boundary, which was skirted by a deep and rapid river, into which many of the trees bent their branches, now budding with the fresh spring. Here I paused, not exactly knowing what path to pursue, when I heard the sound of voices that induced me to conceal myself under the shade of a cypress. I was scarcely hid when a young girl came running towards the spot where I was concealed, laughing as if she ran from someone in sport. She continued her course along the precipitous sides of the river, when suddenly her foot slipped, and she fell into the rapid stream. I rushed from my hiding place, and with extreme labor from the force of the current saved her, and dragged her to shore. She was senseless, and I endeavored by every means in my power to restore animation. When I was suddenly interrupted by the approach of a rustic, who was probably the only person from whom she had playfully fled, on seeing me, he darted towards me, and tearing the girl from my arms, hastened towards the deeper parts of the wood. I followed speedily. I hardly knew which way. But when the man saw me draw near, he aimed a gun, which he carried at my body, and fired. I sunk to the ground, and my injurer, with increased swiftness, escaped into the wood. Now, that's an entirely different scene mm-hmm. than the one from the film, which is a young girl, for one thing. And we're left with the impression, the way it's been cut, and I've seen three or four versions of it, that uh, the monster drowned her or killed her before he threw her into the river, which is not obviously the intent of this at all. Yeah, no, it's very interesting the way even in, even the versions that were put out in Mary Shelley's lifetime had already changed it. It is as if there was something in what she did that appealed to the kind of, um, oh, I like to think of it, and I don't mean this at all disrespectfully, but I like to think of it as sort of adolescent boys. I mean, it was the kind of story, the, the movie was the kind of story my brother liked when mm-hmm, he was mm-hmm. young. It was made by men. And, yeah. and it, it was... They were after the the or boys. <laughs> they were after the um, the horror story of it because they were you know they were after the the drama of the horror story and to you often hear most often hear people referring to Doctor Frankenstein, which is why I go out of my way to say no, he was a college student. Right. He was studying. Right. He was studying science in a, in a very reputable anatomy. Right. Yeah, it would be like someone from I don't know MIT or something like that. He was in a very reputable school in Germany, and so she was she was very careful about what she was creating, what kind of statement she was making with the characters she was drawing, and because it was a different time and because. Um, we have a propensity, you know, for the uh, dramatic. I, I think it consistently morphed into this kind of, uh, you know, Ken Russell's Gothic or, or the uh, Stephen King thriller kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Kenneth we, Branagh made a version too. Yes, yes, Kenneth Branagh made a version too. And he was better, but he, the ending was completely off the wall. Right. He just, it, in the end, it was Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein, not Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. But in the beginning, he did a good job of James Whale's Frankenstein, right? That's right. <laughs> and and I think it's just, um, 
I heard, uh, I believe it was Theodore Rozak, when he, he, who is also a, a very uh, an expert on Frankenstein, teaches it and talks a lot about Mary Shelley, and I, you know, wrote the book about Elizabeth um, Frankenstein. And I heard him talking once, and he was kind of um, defending the right to retell the story however you want to. And he basically made a statement about myth and how we all have a claim on it. And right. if it reaches that state where it's kind of mythic, then each one of us can enter into it and mess with it however we want and recreate it and say, this is our version of it. And I, I'm not sure I agree with him about that, but it was an interesting insight into what I think has happened with Frankenstein, that there's a, a deep sense of ownership by the people who approach it, that they have, you know, it, like Mel Brooks right now with his Frankenstein, and he, he had a whole other take. He turned it into a comedy. But but it's this sense that here's this incredible material. What can I do with it to make it mine? You can dress it up in high, you know, tails and the high hat and yeah, exactly. give it a cane, right? <laughs> well, it's interesting because there's there's a couple things I want to talk about of the excerpts that I read. Because I was struck by, I guess I will say, the modernity of the language. You know, you were you were reading, you know, how Shelley, your interpretation of how Shelley talked when the excerpt that you'd done. This doesn't read like that. No, it's, that's it, true. It's really quite different. That's and I, true. And, and maybe one of the reasons it's it stayed so popular as this tale is that, you know, like Mark Twain reads very modern, too. Right. And, and uh, she had a style which was really, really fascinating. The parts in the excerpts, by the way, say that they're from the 1818 text. Now, was there another version as yeah, well? Yes, she reworked it and um, and cha- and made some rather significant changes at some point along the way. Plot-wise or uh, Some of it narrative. was plot, and most of it was stylistic, okay. I think. And um, and so there are there are kind of arguments about which is the authentic text. Mm-hmm. Well, they both can be authentic, right? Right. We don't have to argue about it's that. It's like Fowls and the Magus. He turned out two versions. <laughs> That's right. Now let's look at another couple things that are going on. We've talked about. Remember when we started originally? We were using the quote where it talked about the orgies and the uh, the use of um, drugs and the and you refer to one of your. Um, titles of one of your chapters as the uh, menage a trois. You remember? Yes. And there's a, there's a scene I'd like you to share with us where my understanding is that Shelley had proposed that an open marriage in that sense of that time where basically he could sleep around if she wanted to and, and he encouraged her to do so and she rejected that idea. But then they are out um, on a boat by the, by the water and um, there's this scene. Have you got it open already? You know where I'm going? It's called skinny dipping? Yes. Yes. So if you could share that with us, because she has thoughts herself, not surprisingly. Do you swim? Byron finally asked, standing, breaking the silence, pulling at his shirt. Or like Shiloh, do you too sink? Shiloh was ready to drown when the last storm caught us up. We almost lost this bark. Shiloh planted himself on the boards and wouldn't even consider my offer to haul him ashore. Believe me, it was the idiot of his genius speaking. He's got a talent for death, that man. Byron had stripped to his his waist and was about to start on his britches. Mary rose and stepped forward just enough so that her body hung between the two calling poles. But she couldn't move neither way, neither away from nor toward either of these two. She was stranded, caught between the nature boy and the misanthropic man. Byron stopped undressing. When I swam the heel's point, he said, it sought my life. The sea's a possessive creature. 
But by the passion beam of hero's torch, I outsmarted its attack. Perhaps that's where my genius lies. So long as the hero keeps her lantern alight, Mary said. Mary felt the grim, grim the grief rise in Byron's chest and boom through, through to her own. The metaphor was too apt. She'd sensed it even as the taunt came out, taunt came out of her mouth. He had been mistreated, she knew, jangled about by women who wanted a piece of his of the charismatic Lord Byron without knowing how to keep their lanterns lit. Nor did she. He was all-consuming, jealous and vague, quick to cruelty, and he played the game so well that neither she nor he understood wherein it lay truth and what was lie. Shelley had turned back now and was watching them. Mary met his eyes. He's the innocent one, she thought, proclaiming love a forever-expanding voyage that encompasses us all. Shelley smiled. But it seemed he, too, was caught, caught between returning to the rapture of his private delight and the unadmitted desire to interrupt the intimacy he perceived in Byron's half-naked proximity to Mary's slender form. They hovered like that, Byron lifting his eyes to the same knowledge and holding his stance as silence settled upon all three of them until all that was audible was the gentle lapping of the waters. Shelley was the first to move. Closing his notebook, he came aft, agile as a mountain goat, as he traversed the edge and dropped down beside them. Byron grinned, undaunted. The man moves like a cat, he said. The two poets looked at one another in silence that Mary, that, in a silence that Mary could not penetrate, an exclusivity that seemed born of their recent journey around the lake. I presume your consent, Byron said, referring to his disrobed state. I should be a hypocrite were I to object. I thought as much, Byron said evenly. And you, my lady, can you tolerate the sight of my nakedness without falling into a moral storm of ethical pretense? Mary held her own. Take off your clothes, sir. I'm sure I will survive intact. Ha! Byron laughed as he stripped. Well said. In spite of herself, Mary watched as Byron turned and stepped to the rail, his crippled foot evident as never before. He balanced just long enough to expose his deformity, which was, sh which was shapely, sharply contrasted to her tantalized delight with the compact thighs and tight buttocks before diving into the lake with a whoop and a wail. Shelley sat down, taking up, his perch, up the perch Byron had abandoned. He reached out and took Mary's hand, pulling her toward him. I see your eyes follow his flight, he said. Mary blushed. I understand my mind, in my mind, all that you say of love and passion, but I don't know what my soul thinks. It swings in moods so fast that truth is but a movement between its many extremes. Do you want to lie with him? The question caught her off guard. She felt the heat rise in her cheeks. Could she admit such a thing without harm? Claire would have a fit, she mumbled. Shelley's laugh was uneasy. That's not what I asked, he said, pulling her to him. And no answer even near it, unless I look upon your blazing cheeks, his reply. Mary pulled back her hand and looked away. She was feeling exposed and defensive, brittle suddenly. Had she been on shore, she would have excused herself to nurse William or go to her riding or to a lonely walk through the vineyards. But she was aboard a sailing boat, becalmed, 
distant from land, and the sun was dazzling in the sky with its last show of power before the goddess Newt swallowed it into the belly of night. Do you want to lie with Albie? Shelley took back her hand, so that she either had to turn to him or rise and give expression to a need to break free. She chose the former, relaxing her body, letting him pull her against him. I, I suppose I do. I seek not to, but my seeking seems in vain. They were both silent, uncomfortable, she stumbled on. I'm more familiar with the wanderings of your heart. I don't know what it means to feel my own on this intertwined path. Shelley remained silent, watching Byron, who, having put yards between himself and the boat, had finally come about and was powerfully pulling the water away that hung between his body and the two of them. Good. Well, that certainly raises lots of questions, doesn't it? (laughs) I think you intended that to be that way, right? Is there something else that you'd like to share with us? I've been doing the, you know, one picking the selections this time and kind of leading the, you know, the discussion. But Well, I think that you picked a really interesting spot there because I really believe, I mean, a lot of what I did try to deal with is the sexuality of these people because it's what they're notorious for. And I think that I, I was trying uh, in a big way to add depth to it, that, that there was, I, I think they struggled I mean, I grew up in the '60s. I'm I'm of of that generation, and I and it, and I think the struggle is to find the validity and I and, and the depth of 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 decisions about all these kinds of what we look on as radical choices that these people were making. And when it comes to sexuality, I believe that Shelley, I, I believe he has seen this truth here that that philosophically he really believed that there was something. Um, about love, the the power of real depth of love that it, it that it doesn't. Um, it's not it, limited to one. Yeah, it's not a limited thing. It's not like you you have a certain amount, and if you spend it over here, you won't have any left to spend over here. Right. That it's an ever expanding thing, but that they were human beings, and that the problem is that as human beings, we can't live our ideals out in the way that we assume we can when we're eighteen years old. Or whatever. I mean, he's like twenty-one or two. And as a male, he has certain prerogatives that she doesn't. have. And that's true. And and he took for granted, and the whole culture took for granted. And and um, I just think that that one of the things that I was um, intending, and there are other scenes later on in the book where you see this theme revisited, and from a, a lot of different angles, was to show the ways in which. They struggled and grew through uh, trying to understand um, intimacy, trying to understand what it was about each other that really made them want to be around each other. Mm-hmm. Because indeed they did, and they and they were very important people to each other. I mean, I I believe that Mary Shelley had a profound and deep love for both Shelley and Byron. And that so was a polyamorous relationship. Well, I not necessarily sexual. Yes, but and and they went through you know they went through all the ups and downs that relationships go through. There were times when they were all very angry at each other, and they were very distant from one another because of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were children lost and things like that that created dynamics that were very difficult. And even between Mary and Shelley, I mean, I don't think Mary ever really. Um, completely forgave herself or got over the ways in which she and Shelley seemed to have drifted apart right mm. before he died. Mm-hmm. But did she blame the other women or did she blame him? 
Now you're thinking. <laughs> I have <laughs> yeah. to describe this for our listeners. She's, she's put on her thinking cap here. Well, I think Mary Shelley um, probably first and foremost on some level blamed herself. I mean, I think that was, you know, I think she was always looking to figure out what it was that she should have done differently or could have done differently. She definitely became estranged from Shelley in certain ways, and it was more about, I think, the loss of their children, and particularly her daughter, right. than it was specifically about his um, dallying around with other women. But there was Claire, the issue of Claire, and, mm-hmm. and that— and Who was almost a relative—I mean, basically her, her sister. sister. Has, yes. and, and it's quite clear that there was something going on between Claire and Shelley, and to what extent and for how long it was— Well, she—my understanding is that Claire was almost like a prize between Shelley and Byron, you know, where they were— a prize, and well, Byron never wanted to see, you know, would never see her again. I mean, well, after he, the first time, yeah, after yeah. the first time, and and there was, um, and Shelley was always trying to protect Claire. He had a, he had an empathy for her, he had a sympathy for her. He understood her, I think, her sense of being left out, and he, and I think, in some ways, he was actually, um, felt a tenderness towards her, and she, of course. Um, was very desirous to be in as equal an equal intimate relationship with him as Mary, and so there was a great deal of competition between the two of them. And I think that that particular dynamic was the most difficult for Shelley, Mary Shelley to deal with. Um, that and maybe Jane, who is a woman at the end, and, mm-hmm. and but that was different too. I mean, Mary Shelley literally had. There were a lot of other women that came passing through there in one way or another. Right. Well, she started with the wife Harriet to you know begin with, right. and it just kept right. rolling on. Yeah. Because she was the other woman for a while. I didn't. Um, the the story. I mean, after all, this is already a. As I learned the other day, this is not a novel. This is an epic. <laughs> what, because of its length? Yes, that's it, literally by the number of pages. Oh, interesting. Um, but it's a big book, and, and I could have gone on uh, off on one other tangent, which I de- chose not to, which is um, there is some question about whether Mary also had an affair during the time they were in Italy with a that's, Greek I've heard man. that come yeah. up, yes. And I left that out, but and and I'm not sure. You so know, you've, what you've my got two more books about the romantics. You may, may yeah, I may get it in it. there yes. yet. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much. This has been delightful. I, the hours just zipped right along. You have been listening to an early celebration of Halloween on Word by Word conversations with writers right here at North Bay Public Media, KRCB FM. Our guest was the transformational educator Molly Dwyer and her astounding book Requiem for the Author of Frankenstein. The spooky story travels from the present to the past and recounts the almost unbelievable life of Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, who wrote her novel Frankenstein, a modern Prometheus, when she was only 19 years old. Our engineers for today's show are Mark Fuller and Jesse Fankishen. Staff assistance is provided by Wendy Nicholson and Sean Knight. Our program director was Robin Pressman. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We want to invite you to join us for our next word-by-word broadcast right here at North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, from 4 to 5 on Sunday afternoon, November 5th. Until then, we leave you with Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley's words. The beginning is always today. <laughs>